Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Snake in the Attic by Garrett Johnson And then you find a snake in your attic. Let me back up first. My wife and I recently moved with our two boys, both toddlers, from a narrow three-storey duplex in Montrose, an offbeat enclave of Houston's inner loop, to what many would consider the burbs. I teach English at a local college, and even though my wife works in finance for one of the biggest healthcare systems in town, when our second kid arrived, we just couldn't afford it anymore. That's the reason I give people anyway. The real story begins not long after our first son was born, with the rats. Montrose was, well, is, I should say, a quirky pocket of Houston that's both outrageously expensive and bohemian. Full of art galleries, palm readers, bearded cyclists, I was one of those myself, crumbling structures and million-dollar homes. There's even a guy, I swear to you, who walks the streets in a kind of wizard get-up and carries a gnarled staff. I saw him once in a used bookstore, instructing two teenage boys on the ins and outs of H.P. Lovecraft, leaning on his staff in the sci-fi aisle, running his finger across a page of The Call of Cthulhu and other weird stories. I saw him another time sitting eyes closed, deep in repose, under the giant sprawling oak at the corner of Mulberry and Sol Ross in Menil Park. I have no idea what this man does for food or what his relationship to those two clean-cut teens could possibly have been. I never saw him begging, never saw him working, mostly just shambling up and down the sidewalks in all four cardinal directions, the Westheimer-Montrose intersection, a kind of fulcrum for his wanderings. His hair and beard are long, but he's always well-kempt, healthy-looking, and he walks with purpose and dignity like he's thoroughly in control of his own destiny. I always admired him for this. Truth be told, I always envied him for this. But now we really get to it, because there's one more thing I should say before I tell you about the rats and the snake and all the rest of it. You see, before my wife and I had kids, I had for some time been nestled way down deep in the warm, cosy, soporifically iron grip of an addiction. Chemical in nature, that's all you really need to know. But it was one of those situations where I could function pretty well at most ordinary, observable human activities, making it eminently possible to hide the fact from my wife. As soon as kid number one entered the scene, though, no dice. It was only a matter of weeks till my wife grew suspicious. I'm sure it was my bizarre, out-of-proportion responses to the smallest infractions of our sweet little being against the ordered normalcy of pre-fatherhood life. A thin spray of pee on the wall by the changing table, for example, and I found myself clutching a lock of hair that I numbly realised I had actually pulled from my own head. After buckling a fresh diaper on him and transferring him to the crib with the gentleness of a mother duck trying not to crack an egg, I tore the bulky changing table from the wall, etching deep ruts into the hardwood, and sprayed down everything with Windex. Don't look for rationality in this process. I then scrubbed the wall with a sponge and capped it all off by vacuuming the entire third floor. One night that same week, a minute too long of wee hour crying, and I leapt out of bed, stomped to the crib, bent over my son with a finger to my lips and shushed him so loudly 
It woke my wife, who had trained herself to sleep through the first ten minutes of his fussing. It was pitch black, but I could hear the bed creak. What the hell's going on? I just stood there, hunched in the dark, shushing, finger to my lips, spittle flying, head shaking with the effort. Shh, 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 shh. I went to the light switch and flipped it on, my wife squinting, my son bawling, and then I stalked through the rest of the house, bathing it all in what I perceived to be the cleansing light of every bulb in every room on every floor, spreading my arms to it when I was done, lifting my face to drink it all in, to smell it, this purifying brilliance. Another time, not long after that, the banging of a rattle toy in the kitchen tile at breakfast, and I jumped out of my chair, sent it clattering, and punched a deep crack in the pantry door before marching, wordless, out of the house. I'm not proud of this. And I'd never been anything like this. It's alien and bewildering and terrifying to see yourself not yourself, or to think that maybe this really is your true self and it's just been hiding under a veneer of relative ease all this time. But in a matter of days after that pantry incident, all was laid bare. Laid bare at least between my wife and me and a good therapist we found. Anyway, we handled it. To make a grimly protracted tale unjustly short, I kicked it. I don't mean to be cavalier about that part of it, it was hell. But it's not the focus here. And I've been free of it ever since. Two and a half years sober now. All should be well, especially by the point at which I'm writing this. But even back then, things should have been fine. Once the sobriety and the healing and the honesty started. Not easy, by any stretch. But fine. And yet, one day, not long after the first appearance of the snake, it struck me as I stood in the kitchen browning shallots for my wife's favourite meal, that maybe my addiction had been more complex than I'd realised. I don't quite know how to explain this, except to say that I've come to understand one all-important thing. My addiction is myself. There's a reason that H.P. Lovecraft, godfather of cosmic horror, wrote a story called Rats in the Walls. Our bedroom in that slim, tottering three-story was on the top floor, right under the attic. Well, under one of the attics. This is a crucial distinction, as you'll see in a minute. And one warm summer night, all of the world a hush, all the bad chemicals flushed clean out of my system, all three of us asleep under the broad-bladed fan sweeping its lazy circuit. My wife sprang up in bed with such a jolt it woke me too. She sat so stiffly and so instantly upright that even in the split second it took me to register this fact, I knew something in our home wasn't right. Someone's in our attic, she said. Now, my wife was and is a very calm person. She had taken my addiction and the rocky recovery that followed, and which she knows is a sort of permanent fixture in our existence now with way more equanimity than I could have hoped for. I can't tell you how lucky that makes me, how much it helped has continued to help, but that's a very different story. In this moment, her voice surprised me far more by its quality than by its content. It was deeper than usual, a full octave lower. I had never heard this voice before. My eyes were blurry, crust pinching the corners. I hadn't heard whatever had awakened her, but I somehow knew she was telling the truth. 
The silhouette of her voluminous black curls emerged from the background of pale streetlight that always leaked into our room around the edges of the blinds. Her side of the bed was closer to the street. Mine was next to the closet, door always ajar. Inside the closet, in the ceiling, a thin square of plywood covered a hole that led into the attic. You needed a ladder to get up into it. On the other side of the room, beyond the foot of our bed, in a tight little nook that seemed designed just for this, our first son lay silent in his crib under a gallery wall of cartoon pictures, loving phrases and pastel cursives, and a single round mirror in a sunburst frame. I still heard nothing. But the lack of sound only meant our visitor had become aware of us, aware that we were awake, and were ourselves aware of him. My wife's arms were stiff out behind her, elbows locked, fists punching deep into the mattress, muscles flexed. I had never seen her so still. After a silence so long, I began to wonder if I was dreaming, a sound as of a body being dragged across the wooden joists above our heads, scraped through the room. My wife's hand was suddenly gripping my arm, nails digging. She was pregnant with our second son at the time, and for some reason the sight of that new swell under the sheets in front of her, now that my eyes had adjusted, made the sound all the more terrifying. This time, aside from the body itself, we also heard the footsteps of the person dragging it, as they moved from one beam to the next, a man, perhaps, hauling his victim by the armpits, the victim's heels thumping along dumbly as the pair moved from one corner of the attic to the other. Shit, I said. It startled my wife and she clenched tighter. Her face, I've never seen one so sure of its own doom, so scared, so sad. One side of her mouth dipped in that disheartening sort of frown, that precedes silent tears. Then, the footsteps in the body and toe thudded and slid right over the plywood square in our closet. We both jumped and looked into the yawning black cube of space by my side of the bed. The steps above us had a shuffling element to them, like this killer, or whatever he was, was fatigued, or maybe just being nonchalant, which was actually the worst possibility I could think of. I struggled to imagine who could possibly be doing this. A neighbour? A vagrant? Some fugitive with excellent climbing skills or a stupid tall ladder? Long story short, it was rats. Eventually, towards the end of that single fraught hour, we figured it out. It was partly, I think, the fact that the movement was so unceasing and apparently random that I had begun to suspect even a criminal desperate or crazy enough to stash a body noisily in another person's attic would have no ghost of a reason just to drag it around here and there for a whole hour. So, around 3am, I grabbed a mag light and the wooden bat I kept near the side of my bed. I moved my side table over to the closet below the cutout, stood on the table, clicked on the flashlight as quietly as I could, then slammed the wooden square up with the bat, shining my light around the attic in all directions. I saw nothing, but the sounds persisted. And then I knew, and I breathed easy. Oh my God, what? My wife yelled. I chuckled and climbed down. Damn, I said, rubbing my eyes. So, our intruders had given themselves away by their movements. The very thing that had frightened us had served eventually to reassure us. Not so with our next intruder. Quite the opposite, in fact. 
The thing about snakes is that they make zero noise. They also stay really well hidden, and you almost never suspect their presence till it's too late. This is as true inside a home as it is out in the wild. The night I became aware of the snake in our attic, I woke in bed and looked over at my wife, just as I had on the night of the rats, as we come to call it. But this time she was asleep, lying on her side facing me, knee pillow between her legs, mouth open, rumpled sheets half off, silvery moonlight tracing the outline of the beautiful curls against the black world around her. We had been rid of the rats for two or three months by this point, and had found ourselves in a miraculous stretch of uninterrupted nights of sleep. It's astounding what three short months can do to an infant's sleep preferences. We had hired a company that specialised in sealing off residences from pests of every type and size. They were good. Amazing, in fact. They'd closed off every possible point of ingress or egress, which had kept all new critters out, but had also trapped a number of critters in. Our living and sleeping areas were never encroached upon, but our walls and attics were a circus of activity for a solid week. Slap traps went off about every half hour that first day or two, and then, over time, after two straight weeks of not a single trap engaging, with the fresh peanut butter these creatures couldn't resist left untouched, and no new droppings sighted, the company declared the problem solved and told us to keep some traps set for another month just to be sure. I left them out for good. So, we were technically sealed off, walled in, safe from all potential invaders, known or unknown. What follows should never have happened, and that, partly, is what I'm trying to come to grips with. The moon was really bright that night, probably full or nearly, and I hadn't heard anything this time. I had felt something. Something had had a physical effect on me, on my skin. I felt, I don't know, touched, as if the back of a long-fingered hand had brushed gently up the length of me, starting with my ankles and eventually unhurriedly reaching my forehead, leaving a trail of soft prickles behind it. It made me so cold I woke up thinking I'd kick the sheets off in my sleep. I hadn't. After turning to see my wife still asleep, I felt a second wave of those soft prickles follow the first wave's pattern, slowly, precisely leaving goose flesh in its wake. Despite the paralysing effect of this pricking wash of cold, I felt such an acute sense of imminent harm to myself and my family that against every natural desire, I sat up, scanned the room, and then, as if taken over by something outside myself, as if someone else had slipped into the driver's seat of my intentionality, I shot out of the bed ready to stop whomever or whatever had intruded on my home or my family. This surprised me. I'm not naturally a very brave person. Since childhood, I have woken from nightmares many times to find myself paralysed, unable to exert my will enough even to open my eyes, look around, see if my fear has any merit. I will in these cases usually fade over a couple of fitful hours, back into an uneasy sleep, until morning finds me relieved and shaking my head at my irrationality. But this was very different. Whatever had awakened me this time, had had a distinctly tangible effect on me, and it extended beyond me now to everyone else here, to my wife and our son. Without further thought for myself, I snatched the heavy maglite from beside my bed and strode across the room towards my son's crib. 
I didn't think, didn't care, didn't bother about waking him and ruining everyone's sleep for the rest of the night. I just had to know he was okay, that he was there. I teach English, as I've said, so a line from a novel came to me in that moment, a moment that extended itself out before me in a kind of mocking eternity as I stepped across the room, training the beam of a dying battery in my son's crib, trying to decipher whether the lumps were only his blankets and those pacifiers with soft little animals attached to them, or were actually him, my son's small body. In the half second it took me to reach him, this line came to me from some novel I can't now recall, and filled me with nausea. You do not know what it is to fear until you have a child. When I finally reached his crib, I saw that it was him, the small lump near the end of his head, the bigger one in the middle of his bottom raised up slightly because he always loved to sleep when he was of that age on his stomach, with his knees pulled up under him and his arms tucked into his chest, his fists in little balls. I was hot and sick with worry, nearly to the point of vomiting. It was so still, and a new terror struck, the thought that when I touched him I might find him cold, that the weakening beam in my hand might reveal him to be blue. Temples thumping, I reached out, put my hand flat to his back, and felt the miraculous warmth, the divine rise and fall of well-patterned breathing. Life. I felt sledgehammered in the back of the head with relief and literally had to sit. I slid down the wall that was just a couple of feet behind me in his little crib nook, laid my head on my knees, and I'm not ashamed at all to say, cried quietly for a good five minutes. Thank you, I whispered to the dark. God, I said, thank you. I found words tumbling out of my mouth into the silver-black night towards my son's crib. My dear boy, I whispered, covering my mouth with both hands, looking up at his lopsided profile, drinking him in. My boy, my boy. Across the room, my wife sucked in a breath, shifted around till she was on her other side facing the street now, and settled back into a heavy breathing sleep. I wiped my nose on my bare shoulder, wiped the tears away with my hands, and wiped my hands on my thighs. I breathed out slowly, trying to be quiet, not to sniff. And then I felt it again. It started at the crown of my head this time. From there, a silken touch brushed down my back, slowly, evenly, then up the undersides of my legs and down again to my ankles, that same wave of subtle pricks trailing after it. I was freezing again. What is there, I thought, to my back? That question came to me, and then the answer. The other attic. The attic with a small door on the same floor as our own, down the hall and around the corner. The hobbit door, my wife and I called it. It was about three feet high, and I had to crouch half over to get through it. Once inside, though, I could stand up fully and walk a narrow strip of space between the steep roof on one side and the wall of bare studs and exposed insulation on the other. This narrow strip went back a good twenty or thirty feet. The whole space, other than that narrow strip, was packed to the rafters. Old suitcases, a spare mattress in dusty yellow plastic, boxes for computer monitors and toaster ovens, hermetically sealed containers of childhood things like stuffed animals and pillows with names stitched into them. Again, as with the rats, I had the idea that maybe someone had snuck in with evil intent, had hidden away till the dead of night when they could emerge undetected. Again, I was wrong. I stood from the floor by my son's crib and turned, 
shined my weak beam on the inside of our bedroom door. For a moment, I just stood, facing our closed door. But then I took a step. I had to. What else could I do? And so I walked, heel to toe, on the outsides of my feet, sticking close to the wall to avoid the creaky spots in the wood. When I reached the door, I turned the knob without a sound and crept out of our room, feeling that I had to see for myself, had to confront this, whatever it was, however terrifying. Not knowing what exactly I would do, but feeling the pull of the inevitable, I crept down the hall till I reached the miniature door. I grasped the knob, turned it, held it there. And then I listened. I heard nothing, nothing at all. The whole city seemed asleep. But I knew I wasn't alone. We, my family and I, were not alone. I jerked open the door, dropped to a crouch and shined the maglite beam down the narrow strip where the attic was standing height. And there was nothing. Nothing yet, at least. If some intruder was in there, he was hunched low. And I knew there was only one spot where anyone could conceivably hide, at the very back to the left, between the rafters that formed a kind of slanted wall and a big car seat box. I stayed bent, stepped one foot through the doorway, then the other, careful to avoid the rat traps along the perimeter. I shined the beam steadily toward the back, inched forward, staying crouched even though I didn't need to anymore. And when I got past the support beam that was flush with the car seat box, all the way at the back, and shined the light around the corner, I stood relaxed. There was nothing, definitely no man. Well, I thought, that's why you check, for peace of mind. I let go of the heavy breath I'd been holding and rubbed my forehead. I turned then, and started back toward the little door, through which I could see a bar of moonlight slanting in from the window across the hallway. Some irrational night terror, I thought, that's all it was. But on my way back down the narrow strip, I saw, hugging the baseboard now to my left, a thick black rope glistening with the reflected light of the moon and of the pale beam in my hand. I stopped. It was a three or four foot length of rope that was like none I had ever owned or had ever seen in this attic. My feet were rooted now, but a reflex on my hand trained the beam onto this shiny black rope. One end of it rose slowly from the floor and, with a sinuous delicacy, bent itself up into a kind of S, a thin, almost imperceptible tongue flicked in and out, in that silent foray that snake tongues make into their environments, mouth closed all the while. I bolted. I knew for sure that it would strike as I went past, latch onto my calf and take me down in my own attic, that it would extend itself to a length that was much longer than I had first thought it was, and would coil itself around my legs and my arms, and would hold me there till it reached my neck where it would continue its coil and tighten itself up and flex itself around me till all was complete. But I felt nothing. I tumbled through the small doorway and slammed the door shut behind me. My fingers searched the perimeter for cracks, but this door, leading as it did to an attic, was bordered with weather stripping and was basically airtight. I pushed and pushed to make sure the latch and strike plate had caught, and then I stood, watching it, my nearly dead beam illuminating the knob down the hall behind the bedroom door. My family continued to sleep. I never did tell my wife. In fact, 
I lied to her and said the rats had come back, at least one or two, and that she should stay out of that little side attic. The mere mention of rats was enough to keep her out of there, to keep her safe for the rest of her time in that house. I felt sure that as long as I kept the door closed, my family would surely be fine, that I would be fine. There was no way for the snake to get out, I reasoned, or at least not into some other part of the house, maybe into a wall or something. It had gotten in somehow, but so had the rats. Maybe it had been sealed in like that last company of unfortunate rodents, and maybe this creature simply had more fortitude, more longevity, more patience and discipline than the rats who got suckered to their unwitting deaths by sweet peanut butter. The day after I discovered the snake, you may not believe this, but I actually went back into the attic. That next morning, with birds chirping on the spindly crepe myrtle outside, and the full power of the sun shining through the same window that moonlight had beamed in through the night before, it felt totally different. I myself felt totally different. The fear was gone. As I walked by the hobbit door that morning on my way to the stairhead, I stopped. I looked at it, and feeling nothing in particular, I grabbed the knob, cracked the door, and peered inside. I saw nothing, felt nothing. I closed it again and went back to our room for the maglite, put fresh batteries in it, then came back to the hobbit door and opened it and ducked right in. I shined a light first on the spot where I'd seen the snake the night before. Nothing. I felt total freedom to walk further in, so I did, and still, there was nothing. I'm afraid, however, it wasn't quite that simple. As I walked back to the door, my eye went instinctively to that spot where the rope-like form had glistened in the moonlight. I got right up to it, crouched and shined the flashlight along the floor, the decades worth of dust and grit that had rested undisturbed, because the edge along the wall was out of the walking path and clearly very recently been troubled. I stood, feeling a dim echo in my scalp of the cold prickles I'd felt the night before, and with my flashlight I followed this disturbance in the dust back to the deepest part of the attic, all along the edge where the floor met the wall, a writhing serpentine path wound its way through the grit, and in the very back part of the attic I now saw a tangled mass of the same twisting pattern, full of semicircular rubbings and long swooping arcs. Rats, I thought at first, hoping. But no. First of all, the fresh peanut butter on the half dozen slap traps I'd left out was completely untouched. Secondly, rats never made anything remotely like this kind of pattern. There was simply no way to explain this as the work of rats or mice or any other common pest people find in their attics, especially because the house had been sealed off by professionals all along the rafters and the walls and at every entrance of pipe or vent or tube. An exclusion job, they called it. But just to be sure, I called the pest company again. I found a day when my wife was at work, my son was at daycare, and I had a couple free hours in the morning. The same two guys in faded blue dickies who'd done the initial job showed up. A snake, he said, the older one asked, who was standing right outside the hobbit door. Yeah, seriously doubt it, he said. I've never even heard of that. Not this high up. I know it sounds crazy, I tried to laugh. Actually, I'm, I'm hoping you can just check it out and tell me I'm off my rocker. He shrugged and went in. The younger man and I followed. We all had flashlights, and when the first man got to the back, he stopped, stood, shining his bright yellow beam down on the spot. This what you saw, he said. 
The younger man went over. He stood there for a second, seemingly unmoved. Then he turned back to me. When I came around the corner at the back, I saw nothing but those swoops and arcs in the dust I'd seen that first morning. Except, they seemed multiplied. The older man looked up. That it? Yeah, I said. He looked down at it again. I just don't think that's a snake, he said. Probably the movers who brought your stuff in. But we didn't use movers, I said, and we never even come back here. These are new marks. I don't know why I was feeling defensive. I mean, I should have been happy. He was telling me exactly what I'd been hoping to hear. But something about the man's casual dismissal struck a false chord with me. It seemed too unobservant or too hasty. How could he be so sure? Well, someone put all this stuff here, he said, shining his light on the car seat box. Look, I'm telling you, I saw it. Yeah, well. The two men looked at each other. Suppose anything's possible. The older man clicked off his light and headed for the door. The younger one followed him out, and I was right behind. Tell you what, the older man said. Why don't we call the front office? He shut the door behind us. Bring an inspection team out. Check the exclusion job, maybe check for anything new. Set your mind at ease. Okay, great. He looked at me briefly, but then his eyes flicked away, as if he didn't like what he saw. Then he started down the stairs. You hang tight, he said. Our office will be in touch. He was halfway down. Uh, That's great, I said, following. Thank you. At the front door, he stopped. Good luck, he said, shaking my hand, pulling a tight, close-lipped smile. Give us a call if the rats come back. Will do. And the two of them were out of the door into the blazing Houston heat. An inspection team did come out the following week. Cost me 85 bucks. They spent two hours checking things on the roof, under the eaves, at every jack and pipe and exhaust vent and seam. They even went floor to ceiling in the attic itself, and they swore to me all was shipshape. No weak points anywhere, and no evidence of any new pests of any kind. But what about those tracks, I said? Did you look at them? The man in charge, some sort of supervisor, pushed up the bill of his khaki ball cap and looked at me, breathing heavily from his work. He started taking off his gloves one finger at a time. I felt, as he looked at me, for some unaccountable reason, ashamed, embarrassed. Yeah, he said. I sure did. He stuffed the gloves into a back pocket. Don't know what to tell you about it, but I can guarantee you there's nothing living in there. And it's airtight. I called the company again maybe a week later, after tiptoeing in one morning and finding fresh patterns in that back area to the left. They said they didn't have anyone available right then. In fact, not that whole week. And come to think of it, they said, they were pretty booked the following week too. They asked if they could call me back. I said, sure. They never did. And they never returned any of my calls after that. I actually understand. Whichever way you slice it, I can't blame them. I have never to this day taken the minute or two it might require to look up whether any solid black snakes in Texas are venomous. It occurred to me once that the thing might not have even been dangerous. But in a way, it doesn't matter. The mere presence of a snake in our house with me and my family, even shut away in an attic where it couldn't escape, was intolerable. I was always thinking of it, always aware. But as the weeks and months went by, I realised that the last thing in the world I wanted was to go looking for it again, to actually see it. I would be downstairs in the kitchen, the room just below that attic 
cooking paella with my wife, our son playing with his little Dr. Zeus redfish bluefish toy on the floor, Spanish guitar music filling the air, safe and sugary mocktails sweating on the counter, my wife laughing at some dumb quip I'd made, telling me to taste the sofrito and see if it didn't blow the stuff from our tapas place out of the water, and I'd take a sip from the end of a wooden spoon and I'd find my eyes drifting to the ceiling, wondering where it was at that moment what it was doing, what it was sensing with its sightless eyes and ever-roving tongue. I felt, too, that it was my fault, like I'd let it in somehow, like I had somehow allowed or invited this serpent into my family's home and put them all in danger, if not in mortal, immediate physical danger, then in danger of a malign, intangible darkness that would permeate their world and be part of their lives forever. I couldn't stand it. Eight months later, we sold the unit. My wife had delivered our second son by that time, God love him. I know people say you should never make two major life changes at once, like having a kid and moving homes. But I couldn't wait anymore. Not with another little one in the house. My excuse was that two tiny bedrooms, two stories apart, the ground floor room had been my study up to then, just wouldn't work for the four of us. Not with all the months of night feedings and up and down comfortings, and the eventual space requirements of multiple kids, and a professor who needs somewhere to grade papers. My wife was all for it. I mean, she was as sad as I was to leave Montrose, all the stroller walks to local coffee shops and farm-to-table restaurants in repurposed bungalows. But such cultural niceties are totally sacrificable if the altar on which they burn is designated to sanity and to family, to others. In any case, here we are, New place, new phase of life, and I have to say, so far so good. Still sober, no blips in that department, and I find myself a part of more joy on a daily basis than I have any warrant for expecting. But I do wonder sometimes whether the new owner has had any problems. She's a single woman who got a job in another nearby college. I'm glad it's not mine. I'm also glad that there aren't any kids in the house. I never told her about it obviously. I mean, how do you put that on a seller's disclosure? Slithery shadow in the back corner of lower attic may cause unpleasant dreams. But I do wonder sometimes. I wonder whether it's still there, a silent, dormant presence in that same shadowy corner of the same physical place, or whether it's moved on, maybe found a way out, or died, or whether, look, I know this sounds irrational, but I sometimes can't help wondering whether this sort of thing travels. I wonder if it has the power to follow me. I wonder if such a thing, which doesn't travel in public and doesn't move fast, could still somehow follow a person from house to house, city to city, phase to phase. I wonder this too. If the snake cannot in fact follow me, or at any rate doesn't, will it stay put in that attic? slithering around in some perpetual figure-eight, living off black air and dust, never making its presence known to the owner except through dim sensations now and then, that everything in her life is not quite right, that something, somewhere, is off. So that was... The Snake in the Attic by Garrett Johnson. And 
we have the great privilege of having a real living. There's a, this is a couple of firsts. It's not the first living author we've had on, um, but you're the first real American author. <laughs> Uh, and and so this is the first time we've done this across the Atlantic. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, which is amazing, really, when you think that we're we're thousands of miles apart. Right. But you know, I shouldn't get so so enthusiastic about basic technology, but it is it is pretty amazing. <laughs> so, Gareth, you are in Houston, Texas, right now. That's right. Tell me about yourself. Well, yeah, I've lived in Houston for a while now, maybe a couple decades, but I grew up in Austin, but I've lived all around the state. Um, so I'm, I'm a Texan pretty much at heart, but I am an English professor now at a local college, which may sound familiar, uh, yeah, yeah. given the story you just read, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Mm. Um, and I, I, I love it. I teach mostly composition and rhetoric, but I get to teach creative writing and literature as well. Been doing that for about 12 or 13 years. Another fun project I do is, uh, advise the creative writing club there in terms of, uh, personal life I, I spend you know try to spend as much time as I can outside of work with the my wife and my two boys which also is a detail probably familiar from the story yeah I'll look forward to talking about the connections but um, another thing so I'm no I, I found this such a um, uh, you've brought this up many times how so many ghost story writers are like the sons of clergymen or daughters or um, and I'm I'm not but there is a strange connection. I mean, so I, my uh, Christian identity kind of does intersect in some significant ways with my writing, even though my fiction is not religious with a capital R, but I'll leave it, I'll leave that there unless you want to talk more about it. But I, the only thing I bring that up is because uh, it doesn't surprise me that so many ghost story writers have had some sort of connection to the religiously affiliated, because I kind of see, even if the connection is like, not exactly positive all the time, or it's more like a point of departure. It kind of makes sense to me because religion to me is inherently, it has room in it for all of the, the possibilities that ghost stories and explore. But then so much of the way religion often gets expressed ends up being so kind of narrow and unimaginative that it ironically squeezes out some of those possibilities. So it kind of, it makes sense to me that someone from that kind of household or background or something primed for thinking in terms of all sorts of possibilities in the universe, but then kind of quashed by what feels like dry, cold tradition would kind of find this perfect home in the ghost story form. So that's it. That's, that's re that is really interesting. And I hadn't anticipated you bring that up. And right. as you're saying it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it because it is astonishing how many people are either clergymen Right. Or the sons and daughters of, you know. Mm -hmm. And I suppose a couple of thoughts occur to me. The first is that um, mm -hmm. if you if you're coming from um, that background where you you t not take for granted, but it is a fully accepted part of your reality that there are non-physical mm. realities. Right. Metaphor. Yeah, me I guess. So it's it's easier to to step into that world whereby I suppose if you're coming from a uh, physicalist, scientific drive, then you believe the, the universe is a, is a machine that works without any anything, anything really is dead, basically. You know, so I think that's, an, I hadn't thought about that, but that, that makes sense. But, you know, that always, that also makes me think, because I, I love, you know, people like Lovecraft and others who, who are coming from a very, a physicalist um, background. And it's always been so fascinating to me that, uh, you know, Lovecraft could envision the kinds of monsters and things. I, and that, that's a different, uh, so I, I don't mean to imply, in other words, that, that, that kind of 
you know, imagination or something only comes from a religious background. But, you know, it it it, it makes sense to me that, uh, as you put it, that uh, there's some pre-priming that can happen uh, in people's minds from coming from those sorts of backgrounds that make them feel probably fairly comfortable in this type of form. And I know that the church hasn't uh, always been happy with, although it's never denied the existence of spirits, um, it, it's never, it's sometimes not been happy with this, um, the darker side, because I suppose hauntings and uh, horror stories, that, that there are some pretty unpleasant entities out there in those stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, this is something I'm really interested to talk about. The, the, those darker realities, uh, darker slash unseen parts of human existence or, or just the universe in various ways that ghost stories and also weird fiction and horror fiction of, of different types are happy to acknowledge that exist. And that's one thing I've always loved about the form of this type of, of thing, weird fiction, horror fiction, ghost stories, that they're, they kind of stare unflinchingly into some of the more unpleasant realities about the universe that maybe other types of forms don't care to to look at but so it's kind of refreshing you know uh and not that they necessarily provide a bunch of answers but but um that's one of the several major things that has interested me in this form that i find powerful and intriguing about it the, i was just reading uh, yesterday i think an interview with thomas ligotti you know who mm-hmm. and i hadn't actually realized how dark his worldview is oh you know he he, he is uh complete i don't think you'd call him a nihilist but right you know he sees nothing good and he comes he's sort of that lovecraftian idea yeah that you know uh, humanity is a big mistake and really should just all be extinguished right well i tend to be a bit more positive about things yeah me too i'm, I'm kind of with you on that I, I i understand that uh viewpoint and it is kind of what I what I think of as Lovecraft's stance as well, it's like you know mankind is at best a kind of an accident and at worst a bad mistake that just only causes problems wherever it goes, uh, which of course is partly true in a way um, to me at least. But but yeah, there's some kind of room for some hope and and meaning beyond just that to me. And and I see I and I even feel some of some of that, or I take some of it away at least from a lot of horror fiction and weird fiction, which most people find strange to say but i actually do well i mean you know within that genre there are so so many different kinds from the you know the gore and the splatter right punk and stuff and then the weird fiction and the, the gothic so there's so many yes. kind of sub-genres I, I say quite a lot and i was li- watching um get shorty you know <laughs> that uh, yeah which i've enjoyed right. and uh, at one point they, they don't like the film because of the ending because in, in the first ending the woman potentially throws herself off the cliff, the heroine. And the, the, the movie producer says people don't like that. And, and funnily enough, thinking about story, people, it seems to me, with a lot of stories, people want mm. the story to have a moral teaching, you know. Right. Not, not big, not hitting on the head with it, but, you know, to reaffirm the sense of right and wrong. Yeah. Because the world sometimes feels pretty out of control. So through stories, maybe, you, 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 this is what you do for a living. Right. So you, you talk about stories and think about stories to, to reaffirm the fact that, you know, certain things should happen in certain ways and there's a right and a wrong. Yeah. You mentioned about rhetoric before, and I've just kind of yeah. been reading up on that and getting a, I've just ordered a book about rhetoric. Oh. And that is the craft of putting the, stories together i've started copying out people's 
work. I'm reading Ray Bradbury at the moment. Yeah. And um, just copying it out and just go, and, and looking at this, how it's done, you know, the, rhetor- the rhetoric of it, you know. So, yeah, do, do you teach that? Yes, I do. I mean, and talking about copying a writer's work, uh, there's so so many things uh, going on in my head based on what you just said. But uh, um, I, I love it. I, a lot of really celebrated writers have done the same exact thing, though. I, I remember one person would take Hemingway and every before she would sit down to do her daily writing would copy two pages of Hemingway just to get just to like see and feel how it is done by a master. Um, and but in terms of rhetoric, it, it intersects to me with storytelling in a big, big way. And I, I actually teach a special themed version of composition rhetoric too, uh, that's called heroes, villains and storytelling um, about how kind of narrative categories for thinking can be they're so automatic which i feel like you you're touching on a little bit we and and in some ways that's very helpful and very good i mean um we see you know a right and a wrong and this is one of the things about ghost stories specifically that i was going to mention that i that i love that there is it feels like when you're reading a good ghost story you're kind of in contact with the the basic primal moral sensibilities of all people from all times, you know, in all places where, you know, justice gained for people oppressed or wronged and things like that. Um, or, or at least a, a nod toward, you know, a sense that that should happen, but you know, the poetic justice that often, often happens to the, the, the oppressor, the bad person. Um, I just read a novel by, Hawthorne, the the House of the Seven Gables, where that Nathaniel Hawthorne, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, exactly, um, and it, that's exactly the kind of thing going on. But to backtrack about um, rhetoric, so um, the the kind of thesis of that course of mine is that uh, you know stories have such a power to influence people, but also to kind of shape meaning in a way, right? To help us put things into a certain uh, grid that we can understand them uh, and our, our lives as well. So it's easy, it's very easy and instinctive to think of ourselves as the heroes and the other as the villain. Um, and that can be problematic, right? Um, in obvious ways. And so, it, so I try to, you know, just really familiarize my students with all, you know, the nature of stories and how automatic, uh, how it, I think we pretty unconsciously categorize everything almost everything, at least in narrative terms, like that's on this side, that and this is on that side, and uh, this is the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. Yeah. And so so being conscious and aware of, of our own tendencies to do that, but also how other people using rhetoric in public or, or in on the page that we're reading are also doing that, being able to kind of critically think about all the narratives we're hearing and maybe even telling uh, can be really helpful and beneficial to all of us. There is, there is an interesting segue. I don't know if I can do it into your story here. So it seemed to me that the story, The Snake in the Attic, was a bit of a, oh, not as, well, it's a little bit of a slice of life. It appeared, I thought, well, the, some of these things, the Gandalf guy in the park and the bookshop, he seems, would you make him up? <laughs> no. I Well, I made up some of the things, but I, I actually borrowed that one from real life. I, I don't know. Um... What you um, what you make of that fact? What, um, I'm curious why you asked. No, no, I, th- I thought it was pretty cool. Actually, I actually wanted to meet him. I, I wanted to go in the bookshop where he was, and he could tell me about something, and then maybe go and sit under the was it a pine tree? I don't know in the park. Uh, 
big sprawling oak, right? It was an oak. Okay, even better, even better. But you know, it's absolutely the tree that Gandalf should be on there. You know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I I, I don't want to you know speak of someone uh, without his permission, but I actually met someone. I, in fact, I know someone well who, when I mentioned uh, this man to her, she was like, "Oh, I know him. That's so and so." And she gave me his name. I was like, "Why you you know him?" <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I thought that was fantastic. And yeah, I mean, he seems like such an interesting, fascinating guy. And 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 you know, off the you know, offbeat, different from the norm, and uh, really capture he captures a sense of the spirit of that place that that uh, I set the story in. You did. It sounds. I, I thought I want to go there. It sounds really. You know, as you said, it's quite bohemian and uh, alternative. So it sounded good. So how much how much of the story is your life? Right. That's a that's a good question. So um basically I well there's different ways I could answer this, I guess. The first thing is I'll say it the the details in the first paragraph are basically true, except the last line. So uh my my job, my wife's job, the fact that we have two boys and the fact that we moved houses from a similar from that place to a similar place, you know, described. So though the kind of setup is of the basic scenario is, mm. is basically real. And the episode with the rats is real. Um, although I, uh, you know, in some ways I embellished it, in some ways I downplayed it. It was, uh, it was just pretty uh, awful, <laughs> especially because it happened yeah. right when we, as I say that some of the life details are real of the scenario. So like, having our first son who was still an infant while this rat infestation that we couldn't sleep and we already weren't sleeping because of, you know, uh, our, our newborn had colic. So he was up quite a bit throughout the night. So it was, it just put everything in this bizarre place of, you know, uh, all of life felt like a walking, waking dream kind of. And, um, you know, you, when you can't, when you're not getting enough sleep, you're not sleeping, and, and you've got this almost surreal, as you say, Lovecraft story, the rats in the walls. I, I lived in a house with rats as well. Like, this is an anecdote of mine. So basically, I moved into this house, and there were these, I tried to convince myself there were pigeons moving around, but they, they were scra- making scratching noises. I thought, hmm. And I saw some of the droppings, and then I, I was lying, and I heard them in the, in the upstairs. Uh, it was only me living at the time. So I went, and we also in that house had... Um, a wasp infestation and a slug oh. infestation. Oh, wow! And yeah, at different times. And um, I'm pleased they didn't all come at once. So, spoke to the landlord, the the agents. It's probably different in the states, but it was run by a property agent, you know, on behalf of the owner. And they said to me, "No, it's the tenant's duty to get rid of." And I'm going, "Okay, that might be true, but if I leave, how are you going to let a house that's full of rats, slugs, and wasps?" <laughs> so, and that, so I got a cat oh. in the end, and uh, that, they went, "Yeah, they absolutely, they did not show themselves at all." Wow, what a nice natural way to to do it. Uh, I toyed with all sorts of things like noisemakers and, or you know the kind of subhuman ear sounds that scare away rats. And we tried things like that and nothing worked um, except getting the exterminators in. But, um, well, good, good for you. You were able to do it in that natural kind of way. Um, yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't planned. Somebody offered me a cat um, and, and I, you know, he was an old cat. He, you couldn't have done much anyway, but just, it was just the presence of the cat. I think. Yeah. So anyway, so there are other things, and I and I wondered because um, we go, you talk about the certain uh, 
archetypal fears in this sonnet. It's sort of the, the the rats are one, but there are other ones as well. Yes. So yeah, the 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 common anxieties of new parenthood, or I don't know if they're universal, but certainly must be pretty common. Um, and and that was so that was part of the the thing I was going for in the story to to put those kind of externalize those internal things that probably most new parents feel and and the, the responsibility for a young life and and the worries about this and that little thing um and just the newness of that kind of life as to you know as opposed to life before it and so i i wanted to i i find horror fiction or speculative fiction in general to be really good at exploring that kind of thing like a real life psychological reality or or, or something that that you that I at any rate feel you can't quite capture as fully with a more literally realistic kind of story. Um, and I, I, I feel like Hawthorne and and you know Lovecraft in his own way e- externalizing the uh, big unseen indifferent forces of the universe in his monsters and things like that. And Southern Gothic writer uh, from the states named Flannery O'Connor. I'm not sure how familiar. I've heard of him, but I, I don't know much of his work. I, oh, yeah, I, I think I've, there's, I've read a couple of his stories. I've got a book of American supernatural tales, and he, he's got one in there. Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, it's a and uh, it's a she actually. Oh, she. <laughs> she there you go. Yeah. She purposely took that that name. It's a kind of early twentieth century, to, it, partly to be you know. Uh, it's uh, funny. I was going to talk about um, childhood rebellion uh, with a. Um, uh, just the natural thing that we all do as teenagers in a sense with an episode of stranger things I was watching with my wife last night. Cause it's a perfect episode. Uh, it's a perfect example of how horror fiction can do this type of thing I'm talking about. And so, but Flannery's choice of name was purposely to kind of rib her very traditional Southern mother, and <laughs> kind of annoy, uh, you know, anyway, they had this sort of family, uh, rival. She was always trying to provoke, um, you know, in a way, but, um, I so there's I'll I'll talk about that episode of Stranger Things because this relates to a little bit what I was uh, going for that there's a you know I, I don't know if you've watched that show have you watched yeah it? yeah yeah, okay. yeah so mm-hmm. you know there's an episode where the the police chief has found that that runaway girl who's got these supernatural powers uh, that the government has been kind of experimenting on her so she's run away and the police chief kind of takes her in keeps her safe because he lost a daughter uh, some time before. And so this is kind of filling a, a real void for him. And, and he's really got this concern for her. But then there's she's growing up and she wants to go out with friends. And obviously there's there's a government conspiracy. You can't go out there uh, because you might literally get taken and, and killed and experimented on it. We can't let anyone see you. But in a sense, I see pretty quickly the, the way the dialogue goes. You can tell that they're kind of echoing that common parental teenager anxiety of a child starting to want to stretch her limbs and go out in the world and not be overprotected and have friends. Right. And so it, and, but then instead of doing, you know, slamming the door with her hand, you know, she uses telekinetic powers to throw down a bookshelf and shatter all the windows in the house. And and so that kind of episode struck me as a perfect little microcosm of what this form can do. It can take those unseen realities that are so common to human existence and then externalize them in this big way that in a way helps us understand them more truly in a way like the girl who would shatter all the windows in the house with her mind if she could because she's so angry at her overprotective father 
And so with this story too, I was kind of trying to do that, kind of amp amp it up. The the snake kind of functions as that because that is not real. <laughs> um, okay, I was going to ask about that. Right, and I, I did want to make it something that, and to tell it in such a way that it could plausibly have been real, because I I took my cue partly or inspiration partly from some a lot of Mr. James stories and and uh, Haruki Murakami, who both will. Uh, this is a pretty common ghost story writer type of thing, but I've I've seen it also in weird fiction tales with Murakami and another American writer named uh, Brian Evanson. Um, who may not be as well known. He teaches at Brown, though, so he lives where Lovecraft used to live, which is kind of cool to me. I don't know him. I, I know Murakami. I mean, I love Murakami stuff. Yeah. I love it, too. It, Murakami and and has had several stories where he does this thing that James seems to often do, which is uh, first-person you know, story, which is also very common for a ghost story, but or, or sometimes weird fiction, too, to, and saying, you know, basically setting it up as if it's him the writer telling the story and not a fictional narrator um when it 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 is and you know james it's often the the narrator's doing probably exactly what he actually did you know it's it's a break from term and so i thought i'd do some research and you know go to this part of yes yeah, some old church yeah somewhere right exactly and and examining the same kind of texts and things that james would have and so murakami i wish i could remember the story now but it was he talked about you know his wife and his life as a writer and he was do, he has friends who told him there was this thing he might find interesting and then it starts out all very plausibly enough but then uh, it gets very weird at some point and you can tell okay there now definitely fiction is coming in but it, it feels it just lends an extra sense of you know verisimilitude to the tale kind of I, I think sucks readers in especially if they were to do a little research or, or know me and they were like, Oh, this is like real. But then, Whoa, that happened. I've had people actually ask me, did that really happen? Um, but <laughs> it's, it's very plausibly stitched in because, you know, you've got these features of the, the infestation and the exterminators coming in and the place you live and that the, as you said, the anxieties of parenthood and then the snake and it's plausible okay the exterminators what did they say at some point it, it's unlikely to be a snake so high up and what do they mean by that high up in the building or yeah i was thinking like third story up in a building with just you know straight brick on the side although as i understand it uh, snakes can climb things i don't know how but again i've never actually heard of one in someone's third story attic um are you familiar with um S snakes that possibility <laughs> we don't have many snakes we've got some vipers uh, but i'm you know i've never seen one i've seen some grass snakes but i think we're too cold for them um so um but i mean we have the listeners in australia and other parts of the world which are hot india so they've got plenty of snakes i mean it, it occurred to me and i as the narrator even says at one point you know i didn't even really bother to i kind of wanted to keep it a, a sort of unresearched thing, but to to keep it kind of informal and just from this first person narrator's perspective, it almost doesn't really matter if it's actually plausible or not because it's so weird. Uh, and th that's what the narrator says, but that's also kind of the attitude that I, as the writer, uh, took that even if it is technically possible, it I've never heard of it. I it's it's unusual enough, and it, and the narrator connects it to what's going on in his life and even what's kind of going on within himself. And that's where the addiction element came into it. That also is fictional, but it, at, at the same time as so much stuff that fiction writers 
put into their stuff, it, it, it even though it's technically fictional, it still kind of speaks to something real, you know. Um, he says, he says uh, something, he said, my, I realized deep down my addiction was myself. Yes. So yes. I, was, I wasn't sure about the snake. The fact that these guys who know about, who do this for a living, you know, they come and do the extermination, they are pretty certain it isn't. That is a clue, it seemed to me. And then the you say about black air and dust. If the snake can fo- follow the follow the narrator once he leaves the house, it, and I really like that line, and stay living on black air and dust. I thought, wow, that's a really good line. So, so yeah. So I took it at the end. I thought, no, nah, it's it, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol of some kind for the deeper disquiets that you've hinted at. You know, I think. Right. So it, it definitely was meant to be symbolic of those very things like those. And you've talked a lot about the Jungian archetypes. And it was it was kind of it was some sort of subconscious when I first thought of it. But then I realized, oh, this is sort of like the shadow um, self in a way. Um, and so I kind of, you know, with that in mind, polished it up and, and had that as I finished out the story. But but so I definitely intended it from the beginning to be symbolic of that kind of uh, thing in a, in a way you could almost say, you know, uh, it, I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but you know, we, like m- we all, or at least many of us, you know, we all have our different snakes in the attic, you know, whatever they may be. And it's kind of touching on that reality, but in a visceral ex- externalized way. And I, I did initially plan to make it a concrete, an actual literal physical thing um i don't know if i should say this because <laughs> um, uh, uh okay uh well because you know it, the story is what it is now and it's out there and i and i think it's it's doing what i what i would hope it uh, hope it would have done but i did originally plan to have it actually still be symbolic in in a real life kind of way but but in the story to be a concrete physical thing because um but but then i I, I just for various reasons decided, um, partly in conversation with the editor at, at the Ghost Story magazine, which is a wonderful place. The editor, uh, Paul Guernsey, um, it, I, I was talking about him about it with him, but and and uh, he didn't, you know, tell me to do it or something. But I, uh, but I, I thought about it and I realized, you know, I really love the the Henry James Turn of the Screw kind of, you know. I'm not sure if it's real. And you said on one of the recent episodes, I think about the um, Oliver Onions uh, story that there's a long tradition of this, you know, not quite sure if it's real or not, um, this ambiguous nature, which I've always loved about Nathaniel Hawthorne as well. A lot of his short stories like Young Goodman Brown um, and things like that, that they're kind of my first loves of the horror slash ghost story form. So i I decided to keep it where it's it could be real, but the suggestion is that whether it is or not, the import of it is this symbolic thing that it's representing about. Uh, and you know, you talk about that um, in some stories. Of course, we doubt the sanity of the narrator, but I never did that here. Oh, even yeah. though, yeah, I never thought, "Oh, this guy's gone crazy," you know, as we say in the trade. So, uh, uh, you know, but I did, I never thought that, I mean, okay, he's got anxieties, but they are, they are the normal anxieties of someone in a stressed position, I think. Right. Wow. That's, I'm really glad to hear you say that. Cause 
Um, and I'm, I, I, I wanted, I, I wanted that to be the reaction. Um, cause I, insanity wasn't one of the possibilities I was, I was toying with is in terms to, of how to explain all this, but I'm, I'm curious, do you have a, a, a sense of why you felt you could trust his sanity? Not that I, <laughs> you didn't sign up for me to ask you questions, but no, and I hadn't thought about that. But I think it's because the rest of the of the story is really concrete. You know, there's there's no all the detailed stuff in his life is it's not to be doubted. There is no hint in anything else that uh, that there's anything ambiguous. And you would expect that if he if he was delusional, then um, the other, he would have some other pretty strange ideas as well. But um, but I didn't, and I think that's probably why I never doubted it. I never doubted that whatever's happening, he may be uncertain about what's going on with the snake, but he's not lost contact with reality. Right, that is excellent. And uh, now that you say that, it, it, it reoccurs to me that that was one of the reasons I initially wanted to make the snake concrete. And I wanted the actual, those exterminator men to confirm the concreteness of it. So the, I initially had a scene that was very different there with them, but then I decided that I didn't need that. And, and I kind of wanted it to be more ambiguous, but my, the writing of the whole story, which initially included that concrete part, I definitely intended to make it feel, I wanted to ground it very much in recognizable reality so that it would feel real. Very naturalistic, yeah, it does feel that. One, I was going to ask you a question. Um, I think there was only one item of vocabulary that I didn't get. Well, I guessed what it was. Um, so these guys turn up in their dickies. What is a dicky? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's just sort of a, a work, uh, like a one-piece work type of... Yeah, how would you we call them? We call them dungarees, I think. Do, are they the same thing as dungarees? Do you know, you know what a dungaree is? Not, not like overalls, but sort of like, and not denim, but, but right, sort of like, you know, ankle to wrist, full on, you know, one, it's got buttons up the front. Okay. I don't think we've got it, or a hazchem suit or something like that. I don't think we've got a word for that, so now we have. So, uh, yeah, because a dicky in British English is probably an old fashioned, it's quite old fashioned for a dicky bow tie. So, you, in your dicky is a, in, in the old days when they had um, like a tuxedo and they would have, and they would have a plastic shirt, or, yeah, a plastic shirt, and it was all false. The tie was false, the collar was, it wasn't a real thing, it just kind of slipped in. I think that's what a dicky is. Uh, probably nobody under a certain age wouldn't have a clue what that was now. Right. Well, that would be a very different kind of work uniform, wouldn't it? <laughs> <For the exterminators. laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody's, somebody's got to do it, you know. The other thing, you, we were talking about the symbolism of the snake, and we started off talking about religion. And I'm not sure if you've um, you know consciously connected the snake in the attic with the serpent in the garden but do you think is there a link there well i didn't consciously intend to connect it and i and i'm not sure i mean it's possible that subconsciously i did i i think of the snake in the garden as like a you know primarily at least the idea of a deceiver like a, a deceiver with intent to deceive but this so that's not exactly how i thought of this snake in the attic I, um although I, the connection to me does seem to be in, in the kind of primal nemesis in a way you know 
Yeah. Now that you say that, um, and I'll unpack a little, maybe in a, in a psychological or kind of personal way for that, for the narrator, it's, it's, instead of an external deceiver it's sort of like him as he says in the beginning my addiction is myself it's some the 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 shadow part of himself that is causing him trouble right deceiving him uh in some way i suppose and the the serpent in the garden provides in in some knowledge doesn't he you know the the knowledge of the truth of 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 good good and evil evil. right yeah yeah absolutely so does this this snake teach our narrator anything about himself Ooh, that is an great, excellent connection. I like that. Um, I, I, I think uh, he suggests a lesson to him, or or something about himself that he should know. Maybe not a propositional kind of lesson, but just I, you know what? I think if if he teaches him something, or it teaches him something, it's that that line that he says at the end of the first scene, which is my my addiction is myself. Um, because when the snake first appears, as he says, when he's in the kitchen, you know, browning uh, shallots or shallots. Um, oh, shallots, uh, you would say, says, you? shallots. Okay, yeah, shallots. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an American um, idiot thing. But, uh, you know, there are even my father-in-law even says shallots and he's American. So, I, But, yeah, it's, a, it's probably I'm, I'm, you know, saying it, quote, the wrong way. I'll, I'll accept that. No, 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 no. It's it's just um, you know, and you know, we consume such a lot of American uh, language stuff on TV and movies, and you think and you think you you've got it all, and you know all the differences, especially because sometimes I obviously I read out these stories in in my American accent, and uh, and there are certain things like uh, you know herbs, obviously for herbs, and uh, address rather than address, and it's little things like this. So that's one that I didn't know. So yeah, I think he he as he's sitting there and he's reflecting that um, the the snake has already taught him something or started teaching him something which is about himself. Um, it's almost like a physical manifestation or maybe a psychological manifestation of or spiritual manifestation of his previously dominant kind of self focus, I guess um, that that perhaps is intensifying the anxieties that he now has because life as he used to know it, you know, in his pre-fatherhood existence uh, is kind of shattered and in good ways, you know, in, in good and bad ways, but it's just different now. And it's so different that it's, it's causing, you know, perhaps more than it should. Um, and the snake is kind of showing. Well, initially he's very stressed, isn't he? With the, the oh, yeah. infant crying and uh, all, all those, you know, basic things that kids do that babies do right right exactly and and so you know that was those were extreme things also you know thank god made up uh, right. but but again speaking to a truth uh that's underneath the surface right the um the you know exhausted lack of sleep i you know i think one of your other modern writers who wrote the story about the um you mentioned something else something similar about the exhaustion of yeah, it was the dining room ghost by Megan Taylor, uh, which was our episode forty-eight. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and I, I loved, I loved that one. It really resonated with me when. But she was very tired with the infant, wasn't she? And the husband was exactly, away. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 yes, I, I, I saw so many resonances between that story and 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 this one. I, I loved it. Just the the challenges and the exhaustion and the the newness of the the discomforts that come with new parenthood 
I, I wanted to just blow all that up and expand it and intensify it to, in order, though, to say something very true or to observe something true about that. So that dark kind of speculation on, on the snake, snake in the attic of our selves uh, that, can, that can be revealed in times of great stress. So in a sense, that, that part of himself that, as he says at one point, you know, I'm not proud of this. It's alien and bewildering and terrifying to see yourself, not yourself, or to think that maybe this really is your true self. And it's just been hiding under a veneer of relative ease all this time. But now that you're kind of put to it and you have to think a lot about another person and it's really throwing your life off from what you're used to, uh, the dark side of your kind of self-focus, my, I should say, my self-focus sort of comes out. We had a discussion via email whether I was going to attempt an American accent for this particularly. I've just been, bizarrely, I've just been listening to Made in Texas radio today. Oh. And, yeah. And that, that, that I didn't, because I wasn't sure. I thought you must be in Houston. And I don't know whether unconsciously I was listening to that. And uh, it turns out that uh, country music is my uh, secret vice. So I, I didn't even know, but I was, I was saying, hey, this is good. So, uh, and some of the accents there, some of the vowels um, at the sky. So, so you know, doing it as a long A rather than an I sound. So I thought, yeah, I can do that. But we decided, because of course I do them in, I've done Australian, Scottish, it's of Irish, Welsh, all sorts of stuff. Is that I first of all, I've thought I've loved all the stories with your American accent and your Australian, and I think it's pretty awesome for your podcast that you're so versatile in that way. And so I was happy for you to do it, as I mentioned. But then I thought, you know, I I I love the idea of hearing that British accent reading this voice, uh, or sorry, reading this story. Um, and then I, I, but then I thought, but is that just unbelievable? Cause you know, it's, it's clearly, it's explicitly set in, uh, Houston, Texas. So I thought, but, but as I said, right. Um, uh, I, I've, I've had colleagues who are from England and, and, uh, and from elsewhere in the British Isles and I've had neighbors and, and I never, I don't always know why they're there, but you know, so it's a pretty international city. So I thought, well, this is believable, especially because he's an English professor, right? Um, we decided it was plausible to tell it as if a British-speaking person had got a job in Houston. Yes, exactly. And the, the the BP oil is headquartered here, at least the United States headquarters, I think, is here. Lots of oil, you know, Houston. So there, I know that I've known several British people here for the, for that purpose as well, but but then in colleagues in you know the academic setting too. My friend Vernon, who I grew up with, um, went to work for NASA in Houston. Still there, so you know, uh, can happen. So we, you know, it, it turned out it was plausible for me to do that, and so. Yes. Uh, well, so I don't have a website, unfortunately, right now. I, I do have a few ways people can get in contact with me in, through the ether. Um, I am, I, I've been toying for a long time with starting a website where I can put all of my stuff or at least link to it all in one place because I have some various things scattered around on different places of the, the internet. But I've kind of um, ghosted all my social media accounts in recent years. So um, however, I, I do do a um, 
uh, a podcast with a friend of mine. It's called A Curious Pairing, and we talk about literature. The tagline of it is uh, Booze, Books, and Beauty with a Creative Writing Professor and His Hairdresser. Sounds good. I like that. It's a fantastic premise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's fun. Uh, and she has cut mine and my wife's hair for years, and she's really funny and fun uh, to talk with about things. And so, uh, and that, so that is on Podbean. And let me find my link here. I'm sorry, I had it. Yes, so you can get to that by going to acuriouspairing.podbean.com. And or you can find us on Instagram at a curious pairing, and then and the, another place I would love to shout out and kind of draw people's attention to is the Ghost Story magazines, and and that is I've got the is it the Ghost is it the where your story is hosted? Yeah, yes, exactly where where this story is. There's a lot of good ghost stories I have um, found there, and there there's a uh, one writer Rowan Bowman, uh, a writer who's been in there in recent years who I work I really really like a, a lot of it though though and it's going to the um folk horror revival artist uh, we talked about this also through email um Andy Pachorik is that how I say his name Pachorik that's what that's how I would say it as I said I uh, I stood next to him at the bar um in in awe you know because he started the folk, the folk horror thing the uh, at, at the winter ghosts event in Whitby and uh, and I've got I'm not wearing one of his t-shirts, but uh, I often am. So yeah, so I think that's I don't I've never heard him say his second name, but um, that's how I would pronounce it. Yeah, sure. And and so he's those events, by the way, you described those sound so great. I wish I could have the time. And yeah, those are so great sounding. Uh, and but Andy, so he um he uh, did a little bit of artwork for the story. Um, he does for for these stories that um place or or in the uh this supernatural fiction award that that's on the ghost story magazine he does original artwork for each one but he's also publishing a a print anthology of a two volume one volume is already out um through weird harvest press uh uh, weird harvest press uh w-y-r-d in durham so the first volume is already out my story will be out with others in the second volume called 21st century ghost stories so i just wanted to point people to that and other than that if if anyone's very interested in contacting me directly i'm always interested to talk to people and so i have a email address garrett johnson writer at gmail.com that anyone could uh, contact me through if they want so that's garrett with one t johnson writer at gmail.com we've been talking nearly an hour now and flown by so that's been really really interesting we've talked about all sorts of things that i like uh, so I've, I hope other people who are listening find it interesting as well. Absolutely. I'm sorry for talking everyone's ear off. I could talk about this stuff for forever. No, that's, yeah, and that's why presumably people listen. So there we go. So anyway, fantastic, Garrett. So um, I'll put all those links in the uh, in the notes. Been really great having you to talk to. And um, it's still afternoon in sunny Houston, whereas the evening has come upon us in cloudy Cumbria. So there we are. Absolutely. It's me up early afternoon, although there's a, you know, it's cloudy from tropical storm proximity, but so thankfully not so hot, but yes. All right. Well, thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. It's been fun doing this. Yeah, brilliant. And thanks for your support for the podcast as well. 
that was the interview with Gareth Johnson, the author of A Snake in the Attic. Um, I enjoyed talking to him. I um, hope you enjoyed listening to us uh, talk on. We talked a lot about literature and the genre, and uh, I kind of like that thing. And uh, I, I presume that people who listen to the stories are interested in something of the the, the genre and the background to it. So it was quite a wide-ranging talk. Some of the links there to his work, to Garrett's work, to uh, Weird Harvest Press, to um, the Ghost Story website are all on there. So please check those out. I'm sure you'll find a wealth of food for your love of uh, this kind of material. I'm doing fine. Hope you're all doing fine. I need to do a call to action because this is what I must do. So the call to action this week is, if you've got Twitter, why don't you follow Classic Ghost Stories podcast on Twitter? I tweet quite regularly with links to the podcast's latest episode and other increasingly thoughts and stuff on what I'm reading, actually. I tend to tweet what I'm reading. So yeah, why not? If you've got Twitter, follow us on Twitter, the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Thank you very much. And of course, uh, London Horror Stories by Tony Walker is still on sale, as is Cumbrian Ghost Stories. And I'm working on Horror Stories for Halloween, which I've done the first draft. It's about 100,000 words of short stories, so it's quite long. I was doing one called Gothica, which has got a bit out of hand, and I might need to either kill it or do it as a separate thing. It's all about a haunted castle in Austria. <laughs> I try to throw every single Gothic reference in there, so we'll, and it, um, <laughs> I kind of despaired at it. It's it's a it's a, a long short story about ten thousand words, and uh, it became horrific and then comic, and then it sort of ended up as some kind of weird sword and sorcery thing so i may actually never ever publish that but there we are okay so you all take care hope you're all well and uh, next week is going to be a scandinavian story um, for leanne who lives in sweden uh, who has requested a scandinavian story thanks also as well i'm thanking people to my patreons really solid thanks to you guys i've done some um, additional content just for patrons i've done the signal and by Charles Dickens, and I'm going to do that because I really want to say thank you for their support for the podcast and by giving them extra stuff that isn't available otherwise, because otherwise, you know, I do, I do, it keeps us going, it really is. So that's fantastic. Yeah, Elias and the Drow, I think it, that's how I'm pronouncing it right. That's how I've pronounced it anyway. So that's one. And after that, another request, I'm going to do Blind Man's Buff. So we've got just endless amounts of stories like this, so they're just going to keep on coming. Right, you all take care, and I will go and listen to Made in Texas Radio again and some class country music. And then some Norwegian black metal. 